0: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Who is really in charge? Who is running the country? Uh, We'll discuss the influence, perhaps the waning influence of Dominic Cummings with Stephen Swinford, the Times Deputy Political Editor. Matt Moore, the Times Media Correspondent, will take a look at the BBC and its future, particularly at the hands of uh, Cummings and others. Plus Alice Thompson, the Times columnist, will take a look at the railways arguing that instead of building more railways, we should just open up the ones that were closed before if you've got any views on the podcast uh email us redbox at the times.co.uk you can tweet us at times redbox, or even better post reviews on itunes because that helps us up the totally unfathomable charts right enough of that let's get down to business this is steve swinford
1: Right, we're going to start by talking about Dominic Cummings, who is officially supposed to be one of the most powerful men in the country, but actually his influence appears to be waning somewhat. Sajid Javid has scored a succession of important victories over fiscal rules, HS2. We've also seen the forthcoming reshuffle, which was billed the Valentine's Day massacre and supposed to involve a fundamental overhaul of Whitehall, seems to have been watered down significantly. So is Dominic Cummings as powerful as he once was and will he be sticking around?
0: I mean you've basically set out that he that he isn't Steve. <laughs> <That> he, uh, <laughs> so it's fascinating this. So the um Dominic Cummings clearly gets more media coverage than anyone in the cabinet with the exception of the prime minister himself. And yet most of the stories which are written about him seem to fall apart uh, if not with immediate contact with reality then over time. Let's unpick some of them to start with. So HS2 is a prime example, it's a story that you wrote for the Times. Explain whose side is on whose and who's won and who's lost.
1: So Dominic Cummings was strongly opposed to HS2 going ahead. He thought that the money could be better spent elsewhere. Last week, though, we had uh, briefings that Sajid Javid was very much in favour of it. And these briefings made the front page of every single newspaper, which caused uh, some fury in Downing Street, which wasn't expecting to see Sajid Javid backs HS2 as the front page page of most national newspapers. But actually, behind the scenes, Boris agrees with Sajid and will give the go-ahead to HS2, as he revealed in an interview on Sky News with a 10-year-old (laughs) schoolboy who secured the scoop that he will keep on digging, even though it's in a very big hole.
0: Some of the other stuff that you mentioned, fiscal walls. What is it that Dominic Cummings wanted to do and what is actually happening?
1: So they've got very tight fiscal rules. This is what Sajid Javid wanted and they were outlined in the election campaign and they mean that they have to balance the books by the end of the parliament. Dom apparently wanted far looser fiscal rules which would enable much more day-to-day spending uh, and increases across the board and he didn't get his way on that. They, you know, economic responsibility and fiscal responsibility was one of the kind of linchpins of the Tory campaign as opposed to Jeremy Corbyn's magic money tree and all the rest of it and they think it's one one of the reasons they won the election so Javid seems to be securing a series of victories and is arguing I'm in lockstep with Boris it's me and Boris and he's trying to make it the Sajid Javid and Boris Johnson show as opposed to the Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings show the one I really want to talk about with you Matt particularly because it is probably my favourite story of this entire administration is the story of Boris Johnson's office which was one of
0: your great scoops Uh, The scoop is probably being a bit far, but Dominic Cummings wanted to move the Prime Minister's office from Number Ten into Number Twelve and create a NASA-style mission control <laughs> with, which Dominic is obsessed with and he thinks if, if you have lots of screens with live numbers on it, this will make for better decision-making. This was proceeding and people in Downing Street were being told to get ready for this. He wanted it to happen right now. They said, we've got to wait for some furniture. He apparently said, well, let's just go to IKEA and buy some furniture. And it was only when the decision reached the Prime Minister and he was asked if he wanted to move, the Prime Minister decided actually he quite liked the idea of having fought so long to try to get into an office in number 10 he wasn't that keen on moving it and said no to Dom and there does seem to be this this recurring theme that whereas we had the impression at the beginning if Dom said something that was the case that isn't happening anymore.
2: Very similar to Steve Hilton really with David Cameron. So the, the most similar, similar thing about them both is they both take off their shoes when they get to number 10. So they have <laughs> and this they look of, a mess. And they look <laughs> a total wreck. Yeah. And they both wore t-shirts and they're, they're incredibly sloppy but they both came in thinking they were going to run it. And Steve Hilton very much thought he was going to run number 10 and it was going to be him and Dave. Actually what happened, it ended up being George Osborne and David Cameron and it was very much them. And then you had a coalition on top of that. But you have to remember, Steve Hilton wrote that coalition speech. He was really right at the heart of it. You know, now he lives in America.
0: so pro-Trump He is now. He's he's gone through something of a transformation. Um, Matt, we should also talk about the most recent madness in Downing Street. And there's nothing journalists love doing more than talking about themselves. Explain what happened in the walkout.
3: This came on, on Monday and it followed uh, a few weeks um, whereby the uh, number 10 have been seeking to alter the rules by which lobby journalists uh, are brief, moving the briefings to different locations, having them at different times of day, which political editors were quite sceptical about because it made it harder, particularly for smaller titles, uh, to attend these briefings. What happened yesterday was that uh, a briefing on, uh, on the government's trade policy given by a civil servant, uh, only certain titles were invited to it, those from left-leaning publications like The Independent, uh, HuffPost and The Mirror were were not invited. Their journalists still turned up outside the briefing, were told to step aside and they could not attend. Just to interrupt you
0: there, Mm. it was better than that. So as you go in through the door of number 10, there's a strip of carpet, a sort of red carpet, Mm Uh, and black and white tiles on either side. And all the journalists were told to stand on one side of the carpet and if your name was called out, you got to cross over to the other side of the carpet. And those not called were basically told to leave and then it all kicked off.
3: Then it all kicked off. The uh, Those who were who, who were meant to attend, including BBC's Laura Coonsberg, Robert Peston of ITV, agreed that they were going to walk out. They weren't going to tolerate this. They weren't going to have the government picking favourites uh, in this way. Uh, so what we've seen today is, is what we saw on, on Monday was the, the lobby uniting to stand up for the principles of scrutiny and uh and sort of open democracy uh, and it remains to be seen over the coming weeks whether Cummings and, and his allies will make other attempts to um to to exclude titles they don't seem as favorable from key from key briefings
0: what struck me as interesting with this is because a lot of the moaning about moving lobby to number 10 is a bit pathetic <laughs> journalists having to complain about crossing the road is a strange hill to die on however uh, finally number 10 have done something stupid enough that they are now the ones that looked at well,
3: this, this is curious and this gets me wondering about sort of Dominic Cummings like to present the idea that he knows how organizations work he knows how to get people to do what he wants to do but he appears to be picking fights now that he doesn't need to pick the change to the lobby rules has, 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 is now dominating the front pages of, of two or three of the national papers this morning negative headlines for number 10 does Boris Johnson as he gets his press briefings um, in the mornings want to deal with it want these negative headlines it's drowning out messages he wants to get across uh, and you wonder uh, what he's thinking about Dominic Cummings this morning.
2: Also, it's just not very clever, because if he did it, he should be doing it quietly, that you pick off journalists and you, you give them exclusives. Everyone's always done that, that you always have favourites and you give them favours, and that that's how it all operates. To actually do it so blatantly with the carpet and everyone moving across <laughs> is like some childish party game. It's a sort of like... It, it does remind me of that, you know, when you're like you didn't play netball, obviously, you three, but if you play a sport <laughs> and they pick you and then you're the last yeah, to be you're picked, it's that picked. ghastly, yeah, sickening yeah, yeah. feeling of, oh, my God, I wasn't chosen. And that's that's what people don't want to see. And that's what I think probably Laura felt was most embarrassing.
0: And it's also, it strikes me as really counterproductive because the, the papers which are most hostile to what you are doing are most likely to go off the wrong end of the stick. Sitting down and telling them face-to-face, no, that is wrong, that is not what we're doing, strikes me as exactly what a communications team... Uh, should be doing. Uh, Steve, we should also probably just touch on snitches. Uh, snitches. Restaurant Fantastic. snitches.
1: Um, so Dominic Cummings has allegedly got a network of sn- uh, snitches that are operating in some of Westminster's finest restaurants, uh, which are there to spot special advisors and journalists lunching, um, which. Seems completely insane, if you think about it, for more than five seconds, uh, that they would know who someone like me is, or someone like you are, Matt, or someone like Alice is, let alone they'd know what a special advisor looks like. Uh, It strikes me as absurd. But you've, again, Matt, done some very rigorous
0: journalism into this. I mean, the Pulitzer is only uh, a matter of time away. Uh, Well, I basically established from the information commissioner that it would be against the law for someone to use details of a restaurant booking and pass it on to a third party. Um, it would be all right if, if someone just spotted someone in the restaurant, but if the waiter thought, I know that's Steve Swinford, uh, or I know that special advisor, who is it that's booked to the table? Oh, it's Steve Swinford. I'll look it up in the system. If they pass that information on to Dominic Cummings, both the waiter and Dominic Cummings are technically in breach of the Data Protection Act. So it's not only... Utterly stupid. It's also potentially against the law.
2: We'll all start walking around the park or going jogging, won't it? It'll be a kind of bizarre system whereby you can't go into a restaurant, but you can go for a wander.
0: And to also, go out. why would any restaurant enter into this agreement that they are going to? Actively deter journalists taking their contacts there.
3: A question I'd like to ask Stephen is, is: Is does Dominic Cummings have allies within Number Ten or within the cabinet? Is he building support from people who can help him impose his will, or is he only making enemies? He's
1: got the PM, which is um, so. There is actually so. If you look at uh, on the Brexit Day celebrations in Number Ten, Boris gave a speech in which he praised Dominic Cummings and lauded him, and Dom then gave a very tearful speech uh, expressing his opinions about the day, great day of Brexit, arriving in his eyes and, and all that kind of thing. So. I mean, he has a support base in the Prime Minister, but if you look around the Cabinet table, some of the briefings that you get about him, he's a thug, he's, you know, people are... He's definitely one of the key players and there's a lot of anger about the influence and power that he wields and people are quite happy to see him being undone over the restaurant thing, that kind of stuff, because it's the nature of politics. People don't like the power he wields.
0: I get the feeling that the mood in Number 10 is currently sort of eye-rolling. It's not gone full-on anti... But there's a little bit of, oh, for goodness sake, what's all this, you know? So it's
2: not as bad as Nick Timothy and...
0: not No, not yet. I don't okay. think so. I mean, he's he still, is...
1: I mean, he's the guy that came up with the Parliament versus the people strategy, had a key role in the get Brexit done phrase. So the stuff he did to win the election was absolutely pivotal to the Tories. And in a way that Steve Hilton never really had. He has huge cachet as a winner. Um And... Dominic Cummings has said himself at advisors' meetings that I'm not sure how long I'll stick around for. It could be a year, it could be less, we'll see. But I think he wants to stick around and he wants to make changes and he is very passionate about the levelling up agenda. But if you look across all these stories that we've been talking about, which sound petty and sound insane at the root of all of them, is about control. Yeah. And it's about Number 10 wanting to control the media narrative, Number 10 wanting to control access, and Number 10 wanting to actually even control broadcast, to film its own broadcast on Brexit Day, rather than now the broadcaster's in. So how long that lasts...
0: But it's interesting that how each of those things then began, ended up becoming counterproductive, because what actually happened was the broadcasters didn't use their video. Yeah. It has been seen two million times on Boris Johnson's Facebook page, but it could have been seen by twice as many on the BBC News if they'd have...
1: I was watching... We watched Nigel Farage on BBC News and on Brexit. it was a Brexit, total shambles. but actually,
0: night. as a result, the public impression was that Boris Johnson was hiding while Nigel Farage was the one out celebrating. It should have been a moment for yeah. Boris. It
1: should have been a national moment where Boris Johnson said, this is the moment to heal the nation. And it wasn't for a lot of people who yeah. watched it on the BBC or Sky rather than on
0: Facebook. We should have all just gone to bed, I think, having I mean, sat through that. Uh, TV coverage which is it felt like children in need without any children when they went live to a pub. <laughs> BBC London went live to a pub and it was just some slightly crazy people in Union Jack suits and I just thought this was- is not what Boris Johnson really wanted we should probably move on I suspect we will come back to uh, Dominic Cummings in the coming weeks um, but do keep an eye we, we ex- so very quickly, Steve, reshuffle next week?
1: Reshuffle we next week. They're looking at Wednesday with Cabinet on Thursday. It's not quite the Valentine's Day massacre we were expecting, but there are people that are in the line of fire. Theresa Villiers might go. Andrea Ledson might go. We shall see promotions for uh, some some women in the junior ranks, but it's going to be it will still be quite a bloody reshuffle.
0: Well, we look forward to that. Probably more than those who will be on the receiving end of it. Uh, Right, let's move on. And it is sort of already the same uh, territory, really, and the government sort of picking fights with different people, but this time with our national broadcaster. This is Matt Moore.
3: BBC is in crisis. Just because it's cliche doesn't stop it being true. The director general is leaving. Hundreds of jobs are being cut. The government wants to review the licence fee and young audiences are fleeing. Can the national broadcaster weather the storm? And what might the BBC look like in 10 years' time?
0: Where to begin? I mean, when you put it all together like that, it does seem like there's a they've got a lot of trouble.
3: Yes, I mean, uh, from the outside, it looks like the BBC is on the on the brink. But I think you need to put it in some historical context. For for since it was founded, people commentators have been saying the BBC is in crisis. The Jimmy Savile scandal, the Cliff Richard scandal, the death of Dr. David Kelly, and the Hutton report—um—crisis is sort of the BBC's natural state. However, this does feel different because there's, a, there's an, a number of factors that have come together to create this perfect storm. You've got the political stuff, which is a hostile government led by a man, Dominic Cummings, with a, a long-standing personal animus against the corporation. Uh, emerged last week, the think tank he used to run, called the BBC, the mortal enemy of the Conservative Party. You've also got Julian Knight, the um, new head of the Culture Select Committee, who replaced Damien Collins last week. He's a known BBC um, critic and sceptic. He's talked about being a critical friend of the BBC, rather ominously, uh, and setting up a, a royal <laughs> commission into BBC before, yeah, <laughs> yes, before really dumping in. the BBC funding, yeah. <laughs> um, but also you've got um, structural, structural problems. You've got the fact that young viewers um, want shows on demand and they want the best shows of available so why watch a, a BBC drama that cost half half 500,000 to make when you can watch a Netflix one that costs 10 million and has all the, the stars you recognise from Hollywood. Uh, you've also got a, a sort of change in, in, in the culture in the uh, of the last year or so as we become more polarised the um, faith in the principle of a, of a state mandated national broadcaster that's impartial and independent has eroded slightly. People are wondering whether they we need the BBC to tell us the truth about news given that truth, the idea of truth is is, is now so contested.
0: we definitely saw that during the election campaign, where both sides, left and right, Mm -hmm. whether it's Corbynistas on one side, Brexiteers on the other, feeding the idea the BBC was biased against them. I mean, Mm. somehow managed to be biased against both of them, apparently, uh, simultaneously. But feeding the idea the BBC was part of the problem, Mm. you couldn't trust it. Uh, and that is a big problem, isn't it? Once that sort of takes hold on sort of people's Facebook feeds
3: and that sort of thing. Absolutely. In previous BBC existential crises, you've always had defenders of the BBC who are prepared to make its case, and that's traditionally been the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. Under Corbyn and and the left, they're they're no longer so so warm to the idea of the BBC. They they're, they're more hostile to its its news coverage than, than than the Tory government has been. Um. So a big. Um, factor in, in the next few years as, as the, the future funding model for the BBC is set is whether um, whether voices will come forward to make the case for its ongoing existence. Um, Keir Starmer's made noises in that direction. Is Gary Lineker the sort of person who can, who can win public support for, the, for a new BBC uh, with, a, with a more sort of progressive funding model? That, that's the big question, whether the BBC can make its own case and find um, outside forces to make its case for it.
2: I'm a massive fan of the BBC, but I actually think they should go... So- if I were them, I'd be going to subscription as soon as I could, just because I think if you have children, you watch them, they're on YouTube the whole time and they are on TikTok, they're on Netflix, they're they're not engaging with the BBC in the same way anymore. That you almost need to get them to buy into it and that actually there's so much that they do like and they pick and mix, but they're not they're not just gonna go for the whole package. I and mean, I think people would sign up to a lot of the BBC. I mean, there's so much they want. They reckon if that happened, they would probably lose. Was it 1.2 billion? Like
3: 1, it? 1.6 billion. Yeah. Ender's but, analysis. But media we analysts. just
2: don't know that, do we? I mean, that, that's the problem. In the end, you mm-hmm. don't quite know what people want or what they want. I just assume that there are people like Charles Moore who's deeply loathe the BBC, he says, and won't pay the licence fee, and yet, you know, does listen to Radio 4. And does. You know, I'm sure he would spend that much alone just for the radio, really.
3: There are technical problems with going subscription only, though. There was an Ender's analysis report out this morning um, highlighted the fact that Freeview, which is how a lot of us get, get our get our TV now, um, doesn't have the capability to stop people watching BBC One or BBC Two. So if you have a subscription funded BBC, how is that enforced? How do you bar those people from watching? Uh, there's also the fact that the, a lot of the licence fee goes to fund radio as well. There is no real um, subscription-funded radio service in the UK, although there is in the US. So would you have maybe a smaller licence fee to carry on funding Radio Four, Radio One, Radio Two, there's lots of technical questions that, that um, critics who, who, who suggest the BBC um, uh, goes subscription funded need to be able to answer a, a, ahead of 2027 when the license fee is up for a new
0: It only works if, like Netflix, you can only access it. If you've paid. Yes, you can't yes, sort of have absolutely. like a sort of yeah. voluntary no.
3: yes. chip in if you
0: want to, but that, everyone else is. That is, is get what it Gary
3: anyway. Lineker suggested last week, a voluntary licence fee, where if you couldn't pay, you wouldn't have to, and those who are a bit, who love the BBC or a bit richer would would uh, throw in a bit more. Gary Lineker could pay for half the countries, couldn't he? Uh, just by resigning. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's, all, um,
1: it's all rather depressing to be honest. What Matt was saying about where are the voices for the BBC What on earth is Lord Hall good doing? Why is he going now at this existential moment of total crisis for the BBC? Why is the man that has led the ship relatively smoothly...
3: Why is he off, Matt? I don't, I find it utterly bewildering. Uh, uh, sorry to go back to the original topic, but Dominic Cummings is probably the answer to that <laughs> question. Uh, Dominic Cummings wanted to um, ha- have a say on the next BBC Director-General. Uh, so when the chairman's time was up, at Sir David Comenti his term ends in February, he wanted to put, impose a, a sort of a Tory-approved chairman who would then be in charge of appointing Lord Hall's successor. So the timing of Lord Hall's exit was, it was taken uh, so that Cummings wouldn't have an influence Absolutely. in that process. Uh, so all roads lead to Cummings, unfortunately.
0: Oh, so it's an attempt to try and stitch it up before... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Okay. Do you think... Because we all obsess about people watching streaming and everyone's like, you know, young people on TikTok and all that. But actually, there's a whole load of people who... Just sit and just watch the telly like normal. You know, millions of people do still watch the one show when it is on at seven o'clock. Right, so. Yes,
3: this is the challenge for for legacy broadcasters. Netflix is free to to um, set up a standalone on demand service because it doesn't have uh, a long a long tail of people who are used to watching standard broadcast television. Six p.m. news, ten p.m. news, still five. Six million people watch those shows every night. They need BBC needs to be able to keep them high quality, whilst also appealing to to new younger listeners who want things on TikTok and and on demand and on the website and on Instagram. And it's really hard. It's also really expensive um, to chase all these different um, audiences who use so many different platforms. Uh, which is why the cuts that the BBC announced last week four hundred and fifty jobs going in news, although they're necessary, they're going to make the BBC's job even harder in reaching all these different demographics. The problem
0: I think with them then with them doing this now at a time of questions about the very existence of the BBC is it reinforces the idea. You've got four hundred and fifty people you can cope without at the BBC. And surely if there's one thing that the BBC should be doing, it's news. That's like the thing that more than anything else is what a public service broadcaster is supposed uh, to be doing. I
3: think the BBC News Department was, although it's very sad that these jobs are going, uh, is ripe for cuts. We've all been at um, press conferences and events where there's one reporter well, they'd from they'd the Times done and all the Discord. Uh, the, I think they announced they previously announced redundancies and then that the total number gets shrunk down and okay. everyone sort of peters along. But you, you can't have a system where where someone from Newsnight, someone from Today, someone from a uh, newsbeat, and someone from World at One are all attending the same event. And there are there are there is a, a sort of a, a plausible logic in the the new centralised news commissioning model that the BBC is trying to adopt. Although it is awful, obviously terrible for the journalists who will be losing their jobs.
0: Do you think they should just do something radical? Turn Radio Two off.
3: I don't, I don't think that's on the agenda. On Wednesday, Nicky Morgan, the Culture Secretary, is going to announce um, the plans to decriminalise non-payment of the licence fee. BBC thinks it'll cost about £200 million a year as people basically decide not to pay because they're no longer going to be taken to court. Taking big chunks like that out of, out of the BBC's budget, there are no longer easy savings that, that can be found. You're going to end up seeing the closure of services if those cuts come through. Things like um, BBC4, potentially radio services as well. You're going to start seeing painful cuts ironically this could be good for the bbc's reputation it's when they announce closures of services that people are reminded of the fact uh how much they watch the bbc how much they like the bbc and it, it saves six music save six music save the asian network
0: yeah well all eyes on Nicky morgan when she makes that announcement and then whether or not someone who is anti-cummings gets into tony hall's job before um, cummings can stop them still to come we are going to talk about the trains we'll be back after this
4: That's stamps.com. Code program.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Jolly. Joined in the studio by Steve Swinford, Matt Moore, and this is Alice Thompson.
2: Ron Cotton, who died last week, was a rail manager told to prepare the Settle to Carlisle line for closure in the 1980s. In three years, he actually managed to increase passengers from 93,000 to 450,000 and saved it. Richard Beeching, though our chairman, came to the opposite conclusion. Between 1953 and 1980, 8,000 miles of railway and 3,700 stations were closed. Today, we need more Cotton and less beaching The best way to become greener and unite Britain is to reopen many of his lost lines.
0: I have to confess that, until I've read your column, I wasn't aware of Ron Cotton at all.
2: Well, nor was but I, actually.
0: Oh, <laughs> Dr Beeching. Was the, you know, everyone knows about him and him shutting all the railways. But
2: So, Ron Cotton was just a middle manager who was given this almost as a retirement job, I think, and told to wind it down and then looked at it and saw how beautiful it was and felt it was rather an extraordinary place. He was very good at PR. He was one of those people that, you know, invented away days and all sorts of gimmicks. And he managed to boost this line Till now. It's incredibly successful. So it not just has walkers, but it has a lot of people commuting on it. You realise that that could have happened all over Britain, really. And there are so many lines now that have gone. And they actually, George Freeman did then last week, announce that they'd probably be going to have the Oxford-Cambridge line, which would be a much better idea than actually having a row between Oxford and Cambridge.
0: So George Freeman is a junior transport minister. Grant Shapps has made lots of noise as Transport Secretary about reopening beaching lines. Do you think it goes far enough?
2: I don't think it does. I mean, as as you can tell, there's so many of these lines but if you're like me and you go down to Devon a lot there is only one line going down to the west country I and mean, we keep talking about the north south divide but i mean the west you know we had a wave that was so large it smashed over a train and it, it actually a passenger was injured it flooded the line and that was down then for two weeks so there was no access to cornwall for two weeks no one ever says anything about that but there is actually a second line that goes through the center of devon and cornwall that could be reopened really quite easily as only five miles of it hasn't been built so there are lines that could be opened without it costing too much
0: And your point is that in an era when we're all supposed to be getting out of our cars and being greener, railways were much better. Rather than trying to push people from petrol cars to electric cars, actually getting people on the railways is... is
2: Yeah, so Boris's big announcement, we've got Boris Johnson saying that actually wants everyone in electric cars far sooner. Actually, it would be much better to make the leap back to the railway lines. And you could have HS2 as well. I mean, that, I'm not saying that you should have either or. I think you should have all of it. I think, actually, railways, as we've seen, you've doubled the number of people who now go on railways. So, in the last 30, 40 years. So, actually, it's not a case of winding down an industry that is really obsolete. It's, it's become incredibly important, again, to get people around the country.
0: One, one of the things that leapt out for me in your column was how young people aren't driving. Is it Generation Z? Is that what Yeah, we call so them? they
2: don't actually want to pass their driving test. And also... I can see why now, because I've got a 19-year-old and none of his friends are driving it. The reason they're not driving is not just because they can't pass their test, which for some of them it is, but it's, it's the sense that then they've got to get insurance and none of them can afford insurance. Yeah. There isn't anyone at university driving to university. And, you know, when I was younger, there were a few people who actually had cars. That would never happen now. It's far too expensive to get a car. So they're also, it's, I mean, it's partly because they're green, but it is a sense that it's too financially difficult for them. So I don't think that generation are going to drive that much.
0: Steve, what do you think about this? Is, it, is actually, if the government stopped having fights with you and I, and got on with the job of running the country, this is a great idea, isn't it?
1: Boris Johnson's main agenda is supposed to be about about levelling up Britain. And in that discussion, we constantly hear about better intercity connections, so linking up urban areas. The discussion is not happening about rural areas. There is a token amount of money going to reopen some of the beaching lines, which does get some publicity. When you actually look at the numbers, it's £500 million, which in the grand scheme of things isn't very much and won't do very much. So uh, I think you're entirely... Right, they've got a broadband policy which is broadband for all, including in rural areas. It's time to think about transport for all and linking up places that just not I mean, th- we're going to hear a lot in this Boris regime. We've talked about it for buses. There will be no end of chat about buses, but we should also be looking at the railway lines, which the route's already there. So, there's surely
3: the possibility of reopening them should be on the cards. Matt, are you were. A- commuter, do you come in on the train? I do come in on the train, on on the overgown train. The one thing I'm wondering is the the cost of building a railway line, maintaining a railway line, it's very high. These are substantial investments. Um, Stephen mentioned buses. There are parts of um, sort of out of London and and northern England where where bus lines have been cut, where it's impossible for people without a car to do do their daily shopping in in a convenient way. I wonder whether given money is tight, whether that Sort of re instituting these bus services should be a, a bigger priority than, than than building expensive new rail lines. That's
0: definitely the sort of we understand the north argument coming out of the government that if you get out of London, most people go to work either by car or mm. by bus train. You know, if you look at the stats of even public transport use, buses are much more used than. Trains.
3: But trains are so much more romantic and enjoyable that they tend to dominate the media conversation well, when we're also, talking about infrastructure. Well, they
0: also get used by people who work in London in, yeah, yeah. in media organisations. Yeah. So that's the key thing. And why you end up with national headlines about London Bridge being mm-hmm. refurbished because um, people in this building who work for the Times and the Sun uh, were affected by its closure for ages mm-hmm. in a way that northern, you know, the Northern Rail disaster last year took months to sort of mm-hmm. break through into national headlines
2: so much going north south and we're not going east west I and mean, that's the other bizarre thing about beaching is that they decided that everything had to come into london so it made it very london centric so if boris wants to get everything out of london he should have some of those links that aren't going into the center that actually that they're moving people between other cities and rather than moving people into the capital and out again
0: i was talking to a minister the other day he was saying that actually The idea that if everywhere was connected, better connected to London, everywhere will benefit is sort of what you know, the way to get some of those forgotten, you know, left behind towns that have just voted tour for the first time. They're not on their own going to suddenly become London, but better connections to York or Manchester or Leeds. So they start becoming the sort of the places where people who want to start a family move out from, but they need to still be able to commute into those big cities. That's the way that, you know, better connectivity between all those places, not just getting to ten Getting to London ten minutes that, quicker. There's
3: been a big issue in the media about um, moving um, jobs outside of London. Channel Four did this recently. They um, they were they moved their their national HQ from from London to Leeds. And during that process, they spoke to sort of independent production companies, say based in Norfolk or or Bristol or Aberdeen, who would say that actually getting to Leeds is is harder for us than getting to London, even though it's nearer because those connections don't exist. They ultimately got around this, that by having extra satellite offices in in Glasgow and Bristol as well. But the idea of just plonking jobs from from London in a a northern town and then saying to the rest of the UK, right, that's easier for you. I think that's sort of pretty simplistic thinking and there needs to be more sophisticated analysis of of how people get around.
0: We talked about this the other day on the podcast about moving the House of Lords to York. I mean, there's of no benefit to Mm -hmm. anyone outside York, and possibly not even people in York, particularly. (laughs) Do
1: you know what we need to get back into? One of my favourite story areas, ministerial cars. So we're talking about the need to reopen train lines, all that kind of stuff, but most ministers have a car fleet, which is predominantly diesel Jaguars, big, hulking cars. They have a choice. It struck me last night, actually,
0: as I was coming out of Parliament (laughs) last night, they, there was a time when there was all sort of like everyone was in a in a hybrid Prius and they're it was not, all they're all, in jags. They're, they're all in massive Jags again it's park, obviously a story side. that we need to do at some Parliament, point like yeah.
1: the most glorious of all of these stories was the rail I can't remember which rail minister it was it was a Mail on Sunday story about the rail minister who was rather than commuting getting his uh, ministerial car so he could allegedly read his red box on the way in he got shamed for it and then the following week he had to get the commuter train in from Essex and the Mail on Sunday were with him every step of the way <laughs> and the photographs were were absolutely
0: incredible. I can't remember the minister it was. But, but did made... David
2: Cameron have to, when he had his bicycle, he had a ministerial car going yeah, behind him red pretty box, mean,
0: I've actually, I, part of me thinks, these people are running the country suggesting that they try to read their government papers on the bus because of some sort of all-we-can-save... Oh, 100 I think there is a balance to be struck. But, I mean, actually, the answer is that, yeah, it's not so much. A, they shouldn't, you know, there's no need for them to go around in Jaguars. That seems a little bit excessive. But they should also just have slightly more experience of how grim it is on commuter training (laughs) in and out of Manchester. They should go have to go and do that for a week or something. Steve, put that on the news list. Um, we should do something about <laughs> Jaguars. Um, uh, I think that's all we've uh, got time for uh, this week. But I feel like we've covered quite a lot of ground. Like I said, uh, do get in touch. If there's anything you want us to talk about, uh, email redboxatthetimes.co.uk or post it on a review on um, iTunes or Spotify or however you listen, uh, where you can also subscribe to the podcast and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, my thanks to Steve, Alice and Matt. For me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.